Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Daniel Kirsch, who is the author of Sold My Soul for a Student Loan, Higher Education and the Political Economy of the Future. Uh, the book is published by Prager, and I have Daniel on the phone right now. Uh, Daniel, how are you doing today? Good. Thank you, Heath. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great, and uh, and, and glad to have you on the um, the line to talk about the book and talk about yourself and before we get to this very, very timely topic and your very, very timely book, maybe you can just share just a little bit about yourself. Sure, happy to. Um, I received my education at uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and uh, now I teach at California State University at Sacramento. And uh, in the intervening time, I had a long uh, grad school career, and uh, I have myself accumulated student debt, but this is, uh, I should say, not a memoir. Uh, I went out of my way to to kind of contextualize this in terms of um, you know a political crisis uh, and and uh, it's been interesting so far. But as far as uh, uh, myself is concerned, I uh, I moved from the East Coast to the West Coast about three years ago, so I think I'm still uh, under jet lag at this point. Okay, good. And and so you're on East Coast time as I I sit here and record. Uh, let's talk about this book, um, a book that. Um, uh, it's hard to imagine a listener of this podcast not having some sense of positive, negative, or otherwise. Um, probably not the same take that you have. Um, your book is about the really the politics of the student loan programs and their consequences. Uh, you refer to this in the book as the student debt crisis. Why do you characterize it in this way? And, and what convinces you uh, that that in the U.S. there there in fact is a crisis situation related to student debt. It's a good question. Uh, there's really no precedent for this type of uh, debt in our our history uh, up until this point. And just the numbers that I think everyone is familiar with by now uh, to get us up to speed is about 12 years ago, the uh, total student loan debt in the U.S. was under 300 billion. Uh, and today it's you know at 1.6 trillion and counting uh, by most estimates. 
So we're in a moment where the emerging generation is has an average student debt once they leave college uh, of about $30,000. And that just creates a whole new set of uh, variables in the lives of the new kind of emerging political class. Uh, and it also just totally differently situates our social conversation around education uh, and around democracy. So uh, it's it's a crisis because it's something that we did not at all thoughtfully prepare for, and it's it's a it's objectively a problem that at the individual level certainly always needs to be solved, but at a social level uh, is is reaching crisis proportion simply because of the number of people affected and the degree to which they're affected. So as you allude, this crisis is not just financial. Uh, or individual, it's also political in in many ways. Um, who are the the primary political actors in this environment? Students are are an obvious group, but who else plays a part in the the development and implementation of this policy, and really the political economy that you describe in your title? Mm-hmm. Well, there are several. Um, there are a lot of players uh, in this world, and that's part of what I discovered uh, in my research. First of all, I mean, the most prominent players are certainly the lenders themselves. Uh, and that's, you know, there are only three or four major lenders uh, and in addition to the federal government themselves. So those are people who are directly profiting from the student debt crisis and they're actively, you know, lobbying to uh, maintain the status quo uh, of, of the way that the student loan system is set up. Uh, of course, for-profit colleges and universities are are huge players in this. I had a great uh, interesting conversation with uh, journalist David Halpern uh, in my research for this book uh, that I, I mostly fully um, uh, outline in the book, and and he explained to me uh, just what the the business model of for-profit higher education is, which is essentially uh, get all your your tuition dollars in the form of federal student aid, uh, and then and basically pocket most of the money and only spend a pittance on uh, education. So, and take the most of it in stock dividends. So for-profit higher education banks, um, certainly uh, the students themselves are players, uh, although really not consciously or most of the time, at least for undergraduates, uh, willingly. Um, But of course, higher education itself, right? Universities, public and private uh, are a huge player in this. And uh, one person I, I spoke to uh, mentioned that he was disappointed that the state university systems had become complicit in the student loan crisis because they had basically bargained with the state legislature that they could keep most of their programs uh, despite declining um, state aid as long as they were allowed to raise their tuition and fees substantially in a way that um, really was was at a, at a much faster pace than it had been historically. So aside from from those kind of major players, uh, I would say that all of us are affected because there's about 45 million people with student debt. And I would wager that that very few people, very few of us know, don't know anyone uh, who doesn't have substantial student debt uh, in their young adult life. So I wonder if you could place us in time a little bit. Um, This isn't always been the case. Uh, crises tend not to last forever. What is your starting point here? Not, not the book. This is not the, the approach you take. But, but if we were to think about this, when does the crisis start approximately? 
really around the same time as the financial crisis is when the student loan crisis really kicks into high gear. Uh, it had been emerging in the 1990s. All of the factors I mentioned uh, were already in, in place by uh, the year 2000, certainly, but they really um, were accelerated by the financial crisis. Um, when state legislatures in 2008, 2009, state legislatures like Arizona and many others uh, substantially cut their their state funding for higher education uh, in a way that uh, really compelled, as I mentioned, uh, the, most of the public universities to, to keep their programs. But um, because most people were going to college and university in a down economy, um, but instead, they decided to raise their tuition, and they relied on this existing framework uh, of of um, student loan, uh, student loan aid and aid, and that they had relied on already. But it it just ballooned in a way that no one was really prepared for because people were going to school because there was no uh, job market for them uh, in the immediate aftermath of of college in in say two thousand eight two thousand nine. So as far as in a, a linear fashion, that's when you started to see this whole confluence of, of factors, but it really, uh, the germ of all of it had begun much earlier, certainly in the 90s, it hit, that framework was in place, but we've been uh, changing our, our understanding of how higher education works in this country since certainly about World War II and the GI Bill. And uh, you know, other scholars like Suzanne uh, Mettler um, in Degrees of Inequality talked quite a bit about how the GI Bill really gave impetus to, you know, the modern idea of the American dream and American citizenship uh, because it, it empowered so many people to go to college tuition free. But also, you know, in that era, we were seeing a really flush economy in the U.S. that, that uh, we were not afraid to spend money on building an infrastructure of public higher education. And so more people were going to college and universities in the 1950s and 60s and 70s than ever had before. Um, and so in order to kind of maintain that, that system, we haven't decided to abandon it. Uh, most of our uh, job market is now dependent on people receiving a higher education. We just haven't given any any thought to adequately funding it, we've just pushed the costs onto the consumer and allowed them to take out essentially unlimited amounts of credit to pay for it. So you describe your book as a political ethnography. Uh, what do you mean by this? And, and what does it mean you, you did to conduct the research for the book? This is a little different than what people might expect uh, of somebody interested in finance to approach this in an ethnographic way. So tell us about what you did. Sure. Well, I, I should say at the outset that I'm not, I'm not always interested in finance. That's part of the reason probably I ended up with student debt myself. But uh, I, I think um, the way that I uh, approached this initially was I had put down my dissertation in, in 2014, 2015, and I decided that I really wanted to find out what the political context surrounding this federal government policy that I was, I was involved in was all about. And one of the first resources I, I found were all of these um, online testimonial websites that had hundreds and hundreds each of, um, of student testimonials and, and borrower testimonials of essentially detailing their entire student loan debt story uh, and how they had started and how they had ended. 
And it was all of these people who were so concerned that they they didn't know what else to do besides on the Internet. It's essentially like screaming into the void. Uh, and, you know, this it had really started in earnest around the time of the financial crisis and subsequently during Occupy Wall Street, um, when a lot of these websites popped up as well. Um, but I had seen that that one or two people, Jeffrey Williams among them, uh, had already written a few pieces about this uh, and just kind of had mined some of these stories and uh, in a positive way had really had really given a voice to some of these um, these people. And I did a little bit of research around that. I did a, a little bit of cataloging of, of what their um, what the uh, kind of crude content analysis around some of what some of the keywords were in their in their testimonials and things like the American dream um, and never uh, never being able to pay it off and and uh, wanting forgiveness and that kind of thing. And I decided I wanted to go a little bit uh, in a different direction in a more in some more depth. So I began to interview not only people who were borrowers, because I had, had found many of the themes already in some of the borrower testimonials, but um, I realized that this was a whole world that in order to understand it, one really had to go in and talk to all the people who inhabit it. So I decided to talk to some policy elites, some policy makers. Um, uh, I spoke to lobbyists, journalists, attorneys, um, borrowers themselves, certainly, and activists, uh, a couple of uh, higher education administrators. And uh, in addition, I, I talked to some, some politicians. So so all of these people were active in some way uh, around the issue of student debt. One one person, uh, indeed, was uh, you know Adolf Reed, who was the uh, who was really a leader in uh, the kind of free higher education movement in the '90s and post 2000s. Uh, and and so attacking it from the other way, like what is the alternative to having high tuition and fees and high student loan debt? It's to having no tuition and fees and no student loan debt. So. All these people in who in many ways had engaged with this issue, I heard from their perspective. And it really is uh, a fascinating, you know, I'm, I consider myself as much a reader of this book as a, as a writer of it, because all of these uh, interviews that I did, I, I excerpted really the most interesting parts of them and included it in the book and, you know, included some essentially some analytic commentary to to kind of sandwich uh, all of the all of the interviews. And so uh, when I say it's an ethnography, um, I, I mean it in the, you know, as, as much of a um, the in some ways, the loosest sense of the word. Uh, it was it kind of passed muster in terms of my uh, my methods chapter. But uh, but basically, uh, I just mean it as a way that I I stepped into a world and I decided to talk to everyone there. Uh, that I could find and that I could get connected with, and they were all um, fascinating. And one one thing that I I want to share is an insight that I think I gleaned that I wouldn't have if I hadn't done this kind of research, is that despite their perspective, attorneys who assisted people, uh, policymakers who were active on the issue, uh, and and people who were uh, who were saddled with this debt, and people who were not necessarily even sympathetic towards uh, towards student debtors also, uh, they still all said virtually the same thing, which is that this is a cohort of people uh, who did everything right or did everything that we asked them to do. Uh, they were people that, that took out debt to get an education to better themselves to contribute to society. 
Uh, and to have that co same cohort of people essentially sentenced to, you know, a lifelong uh, uh, debt uh, that kind of that really hampers their ability to participate in our traditional political and economic system uh, is really a, a um, is maybe the crisis portion of it or the policy disjunction, if you will, uh, that occurred as a result of all of these confluence of factors. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So let's talk about just that. We, we typically think of, of higher education working the exact opposite way, uh, empowering people in, in all sorts of ways, financially and, and politically and democratically. Uh, but you're finding uh, your argument is for the opposite. Uh, when you talk to people uh, for the book who were facing large student debt, uh, how did they talk about politics and how did they talk about um, their their feelings of empowerment or or disempowerment? Did they connect it to the student debt that they were facing, uh, or did they connect it to the the policies that led them to that? What's the what's the way in which um, uh, this this has uh, this is happening out there in the in the communities and with the people that you spoke with? Well, people usually settle on one or another of several emotions uh, when when talking to them about their stories. Um, I know that one person basically has that I that I comes to mind to get at your question saw that student debt was really a Mount Olympus uh, to him, that he would never get there to be able to pay it off. And he kind of blamed uh, his kind of his entire social world, like everyone told him to get an education and uh, he he also did not feel charitably towards politicians who who said to kind of at, at all costs to obtain uh, higher education kind of certification. Uh, others um, really were it depended on what it's there's no really direct answer to to that question because they all had different places that they focused their uh, concern. But uh, many of the policymakers uh, focused their their kind of um, attention on just the process and the bargains that were made to kind of get through the financial crisis. Um, others really focused, like David Halpern, as I mentioned, talked about for-profit colleges and universities. Alexis Goldstein, who's a, a prominent kind of uh, journalist and activist, uh, has, uh, has focused her attention on the fact that a lot of this is a parallel to and indeed sort of a shadow of the mortgage uh, lending uh, crisis. And so her attention is focused on the big banks. Um, and so most of the most of the way that people end up feeling about higher education is just is disappointment. And as a believer and participant, of course, myself in higher education, this is very troubling uh, because I know and, you know, all of us who are, you know, faculty in, in higher education have devoted our careers and our lives to this idea that it is empowering and that it is something that we should encourage people to do. Uh, and I still certainly um, believe that. And I think there's no reason after reading my book, you, you wouldn't still believe that. Uh, but I think that uh, 
what we have to be aware of is that the way in which we're doing it is ends up having more of a cost to people than I think we anticipate or or even fully contextualize while while people are undertaking their education. So, for example, in the system that that I teach in in California, um, you know, students are already working 30 hour work weeks on average. Uh, and they take, you know, between four and six years to graduate. Um, I think six years is the average. And so, you know, to to put people in that kind of a situation where we expect them to only be working part time during their during their youth while they're paying rent. And while many of the students in in my state are, are, are food and housing insecure as well. Um, and we expect them to shoulder this entire burden without taking on substantial student loan debt. Is really just um, is wishful thinking. So I, I I don't think that you that most people will will read this and say, well, we need to get out of higher education. I think most most people will will see that everyone here that I interviewed appreciates the need for it, um, and and sees its value in creating really high level citizenry. But uh, I do think that we what what it calls attention to most is that we are um, w- without too much thought and attention, entirely shifting the cost uh, to people who haven't reckoned with what that cost means or have the ability to pay it. So that's that's where I think it it actually points. Yeah. No. This this book isn't primarily about campaign politics and what have you, but but it's hard to imagine something as important uh, as this to a uh, pretty specific. Uh, group of people uh, wouldn't have resonance in campaigns. Um, how do you connect this to the current conversation happening at a at a national level about um, higher education and higher education reform and student debt reform? Um, is this something that's likely to change, or is a, uh, a, a will the will the crisis result in in something much more disastrous before policymakers change the these these um, Policies that cre- create the environment you describe. I mean, I certainly hope not, right? I certainly hope that that uh, this crisis is resolved in in some positive way uh, that everyone sees value in. Um, so, to to answer that, um, in my final chapter, I talk about the precedent of presidents uh, being able to issue some sort of amnesty. Uh, in the case of uh, in 1986, when when President Reagan issued an amnesty, uh, partnered with Congress for undocumented immigrants, uh, when Jimmy Carter had uh, and Ford before him had issued a, um, a pardon for people who had evaded the Vietnam era draft, uh, and and debt forgiveness has actually been uh, quite a theme in American politics since. The Nixon presidency, uh, and virtually every president has engaged in some form of targeted debt forgiveness itself. So all of this is not without precedent. The kind of discussion that I think is going on right now in the in the presidential campaign about some type of large scale or wide scale debt forgiveness, uh, and and I think it's um, I will take credit for being a little bit predictive uh, in the book because I was researching and writing most of this and. Uh, 2015, 16, 17. Um, most of the people who I I talk about, the politicians I discussed, are people who have been leaders on this issue, and those are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. 
uh, and and uh, I should mention also, in fairness to Joe Biden, one of the things that uh, is in uh, in his um, in his uh, history is that he co-sponsored this kind of bankruptcy reform bill in 2005, uh, and that that certainly didn't allow student loan borrowers discharge uh, their their debt in bankruptcy. But uh, Elizabeth Warren in the past has talked about um, not taking in revenue for the federal government as student loan interest um, payment in the form of student loan interest payments, um, saying, you know, we don't want it. We don't want this extra revenue is essentially a tax on people who have uh, who have taken out loans for their higher education. And certainly Bernie Sanders has called for in the past, he called for just free higher education without specifically uh, targeting student loans. So I will take um, some, some additional credit in uh, saying that my the book was published on April 1st of this year. And uh, I believe on April, I want to say 27th or so, um, Sanders came out with that announcement that he was calling in his, in his platform for total abolition of uh of student loan debt uh after he's if, if he's you know elected president so um so i think i had talked about this in the book as kind of a you know an ideal solution but in fact it's it's really um in in and of itself i take no credit for that uh in and of itself it's become really a talking point for for the major kind of political leaders of our day um and even president trump has, has felt compelled to weigh in on it and has talked about you know, the need for some kind of um, long-term debt forgiveness policy he did in a speech in 2016. Uh, he hasn't followed through with any of it, of course, um, but he uh, he certainly has, has given some lip service to it. So, um, yeah, and there's, there's also these two programs that are an ongoing concern and interest uh, to everyone with student loan debt, uh, especially um, the majority of people who have it with the federal government. Uh, but also people who have it with banks uh, have uh, created some uh, income-based repayment. And most of the debt that's being repaid right now is either income-based repayment or is not substantially contributing to uh, paying down anyone's balances. So the reason it's a, another reason it's a crisis is because, you know, it's not getting any lower. Uh, people aren't paying it off. And uh, if we can actually digest that as a society, we should really be taking steps to, you know, go ahead and and try to solve it in a public policy uh, way that's more coherent. So income-based repayment is one solution that's been kind of a stopgap that's been around for about 10 years, but it's uh, kind of sunsetted because after 25 years, uh, you're supposed to have all of your debt forgiven, but the balance is supposed to be uh, counted as taxable income. So we have yet to see that um, kind of come to fruition, another 12 or 13 years, I suppose. But uh, if we do, I think we could see kind of a secondary crisis. Um, but anyway, there's public service loan forgiveness is the second program that has really um, come under scrutiny lately because we do have people who have applied uh, for public service loan forgiveness. And for those who aren't familiar, it's a program that allows you to uh, Combine your income-based repayment with working, uh, you know, supposedly in a, a a relatively moderate income job for the government or a charity uh, for ten years, and then you're if you make 120 payments and they don't have to be consecutive, you can be forgiven 
uh, for not only the balance of your debt, but also that taxable income. Um, and so that's, it sounds great. And it kind of works as a, as a policy solution, except that uh, only about 5,000 people have applied for it. Um, but only, but less than a hundred have been granted it. So 99% of people have been rejected uh, for what they thought was going to be an accurate application to their public service loan forgiveness uh, program. So right now it's a very dysfunctional program and there are lawsuits from teachers and lawyers who made financial decisions based on their participation in this program. So there, there's just an ongoing kind of uh, mess of public policy problems that are just beginning to emerge. And uh, it's, you know, the political kind of um, leadership is, is now just beginning to address it and, and being really forced to address it uh, in, in several ways in their platforms. And uh, as, I, as I always say, uh, when people ask me about this topic and why did I decide to, to research it, I just say, well, it's, it's here and it's definitely not going away anytime soon. Uh, the book, again, is Sold My Soul for a Student Loan, Higher Education, and the Political Economy of the Future. The author, who you've been hearing from, is Daniel Kirsch, and the publisher is Prager. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. It's been a pleasure.